If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrong, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, Do keep that passage open. Uh, We're going to have a look through it. I'm going to pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that uh, it reveals you to us. We pray that we would trust you now and hear from you by your spirit as we think through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, you've probably heard of uh, McDonald's being sued quite some years ago now um, for $3 million by someone successfully sued because the coffee was too hot and they burnt themselves when they spilt it in their own car. Uh, But you've probably not heard about the Chinese husband who sued his wife over an ugly baby. It seems like the sort of thing Tim Willers would do, not that he has ugly babies. Uh, Jian Feng saw his newborn daughter, who he said, in his own words, presumably translated, was incredibly ugly uh, and did not, like, uh, did not look like either of their parents. He accused his wife of cheating, and at that point she admitted she had had multiple plastic surgeries before they had met, uh, and so he sued her on false grounds, uh, on false, uh, for false pretenses, claiming she misled him into hiding her co- cosmetic history. He won the case. Uh, and his wife was made to pay him $120,000. Now, in my search for amusing civil cases to start today's sermon, behind the humour is often uh, often reveals something really sad about humanity, doesn't it? Uh, Whether it's greed or pride or image or anger or self-entitlement. And uh, we're going to be thinking a little bit about the the attitude behind uh, these sort of things today. Now, our passage today at one level is very simple. Uh, It's this. Christians do not take legal action, civil legal action, against others in the church. But at a deeper level, it's going to call us to reflect on kind of our own views and our own rights and our own possessions uh, and how we view those. What what are we living for? Uh, What is more valuable to you? Is it the reputation of Jesus and his church or your bank balance? Uh, What do you truly live for? Is it the kingdom of God to come or for personal satisfaction today? Uh, And we're going to break it down into the points that are behind me. Uh, Two reasons to avoid civil disputes between church members. Number one, a case of competency. 
shouldn't have used that word, I can barely say it. Ironic, isn't it? Uh, and number two, the case of credibility. The case of competency and the case of credibility. Uh, firstly, though, it's important to point out that Paul here is talking about uh, civil matters, not criminal. Uh, so Roman law in Corinth uh, had a sort of a similar-ish legal understanding as we still do today in many countries. Uh, and in simple terms, a civil matter uh, is normally between two private individuals or, or maybe companies, and they're typically matters that can be resolved, prop if resolved properly, puts back everything in place as it should have been. So, in short, the aim is to set right an unfair situation. That's what Paul's talking about here. At a criminal level, uh, there's not just an interest between perhaps two parties, but there's also an interest from the state or the government who want to not just put things in order, but to punish the offender and to put in place uh, things that will stop a repeat offence. Uh, so the more general goal is to build a stable society, a, a safe and a law-abiding law -abiding society. Uh, now, we know Paul is talking about civil matters uh, because of some examples and descriptions he uses. So uh, verse 3, he says, uh, these are about the things of this life. Uh, verses 1 and 5, he talks about a dispute between one and another. Uh, verses 7, he says it's involving one party accusing the other of cheating or of fraud. Uh, and so in Roman Corinth, these sort of cases would have been uh, legal possession, breach of contract, damages, fraud, perhaps accidental injury, those sort of things. And it's important because Paul is not saying, uh, as we go through this passage, that criminal behaviour is to be accepted or overlooked or just taken uh, or turned a blind eye to or kept out of legal proceedings. Uh, so he's not talking about assault or abuse or, and, and so on. Uh, Paul's very clear in other passages how the governments of this world have been put in place to control criminal behaviour uh, and to bring justice in those sort of matters. Uh, even in a corrupt society, the governments want a safe and sustainable society. God, uh, Paul's very clear in other places that, that he's not talking about uh, criminal cases. But when it comes to disputes of civil matters, Paul says, sort yourselves out. Sort yourselves out, is his message, as a church. It's embarrassing if you can't. He says, verse 5, I'm writing this to shame you. It's, 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 it's shameful if you can't sort this out as a church, he says to the Corinthians. And the question is, why? Why is a church supposed to sort out uh, these sort of civil disputes? Uh, and that's what we're going to look at now. So the first reason, the case of competent competency, I told you. Uh, Paul's first reason that the church ought to sort out its own civil disputes and arguments is that the church, the Lord's people, are more competent to make such judgments. So have a look at verses 1 to 3. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it, to the, take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? So these are tr just another reinforcement. These aren't criminal cases. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Now, the Bible isn't uh, specific uh, just how in what way we, the Lord's people, will participate in that final judgment with Jesus when he returns, even over the angels. 
Uh, there's hints of it in the Old Testament, in Daniel 7. Uh, it's picked up in, uh, more so in Jewish tradition, traditional writings than uh, in some places in the New Testament. Uh, but we also get hints of it from Jesus as he talks to his disciples. Perhaps the most uh, clearest passage, other than this one, that it will happen, although we don't know the mechanics of how it will happen, is when Jude writes, uh, Jude verse 14 and 15, and he quotes from the book of Enoch, uh, which is an ancient Jewish text. And he says this, Uh, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming. So he's talking about the time when Jesus will return with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them in all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and to all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, Again, we don't get any detail, uh, but we hear it will somehow happen. The point here, though, is not to wonder about the details of uh, Jesus' return and our involvement in that judgment on the world in somehow, but rather to know that we are more competent now to judge matters of moral dispute and personal injustices than those who do not belong to the Lord. And verse 4 gives us a clue as to why we're more competent. Verse uh, 4, Therefore, If you have any disputes about such matters, do not ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church. Sorry, do you ask for a ruling from those whose life is scorned in the church? Now, the world may get much right uh, according to God's moral standard, but they're also going to get a lot wrong, is Paul's point. As Christians, as the church, we will disapprove of he uses the word scorned, much of what the world approves of. Uh, We'll see an example of this uh, later in the passage. Uh, Why would you therefore go to them for resolutions, is Paul's point. You're far more competent. Uh, In Corinth, the matter was even more pressing. Uh, The Corinth courts were open to bribery and corruption, and by all accounts, uh, they were weighted to the sort of wealthiest or the most powerful people. Uh, Rather than any real justice, people would go there to make themselves look even more powerful and prideful. Why would you go there for resolution when you, the Lord's people, have the moral code of God written on your hearts by by the Holy Spirit, written in the Bible for you to see? By what standards does the world judge things, is his point. I mean, ultimately, the world's moral... Uh, structures have to be based on the most popular opinion of the time, don't they? Of those who are alive when the law is written. It will change and it will move. It's not really a moral structure, it's more of a cultural acceptance or not structure. Who can truly say that one person's opinion is more valuable than another person's opinion, is Paul's point, I think. But the Lord's people... Well, we have a a full kind of moral compass that's anchored to the source of all justice, of all right and wrong. The one who created the entire world and everything in it to God himself. So verse 5, he's quite hard on this, isn't he? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, he says? It's an irony-laden rhetorical question, isn't it? His point is that the church is quite capable of helping each other in love, 
sort out matters of dispute, for we are anchored to the one moral God, the one moral rock of this world, the Lord God himself. We, the church, the people of God, are competent, more competent than the worldly judges to make moral calls in these matters, is his point. Now, uh, it's important to note, Paul is not saying all disputes within the church should be ignored or they should never happen. On the contrary, in fact, disputes, disagreements, misunderstandings, accidents, carelessness, even malice and greed will occur in the church, within the church family. His point is that it ought to be resolved. We ought to look for and find justice and sort it out ourselves. We are competent to deal with such things. Uh, And so we should speak to each other if we feel wronged uh, by another. Uh, Matthew 18. Uh, I was going to put it on the screen, but I don't think I did, did I? Uh, Matthew 18, you can look it up if you like. Uh, I'll just uh, remember for later. Verses 15 to 17 gives us a really helpful uh, structure to think through these kind of disputes uh, when we've been wronged or someone has sinned against us or done something to our harm. Uh, Jesus says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. In love, quietly, see if you can resolve it. Uh, If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So get two or three together just to have a conversation in love so that the matter can be resolved. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, don't harbour anger and distaste and disgruntled relationships within the church. Seek a resolution, whether that's small or large. But also, don't take them to court if it's that serious. Uh, Seek the wisdom and the help of the church first. Uh, In a sense, if they refuse any kind of justice or uh, discussion within the church, we're to effectively remove them from the church anyway. It changes the whole situation, doesn't it? But as long as two believers are seen and are behaving like believers, there's no reason the church can't resolve these issues. So uh, that's the first one. Uh, the second point then, the case of credibility. Paul slightly changes his uh, tack here. So verse 7. Uh, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul's view of whether someone has won a dispute or not is not actually based on whether the judge rules in favour of that party or not. Paul's view of who wins a dispute is not judged on what the result is. It's based on the attitude of the claimant, of the person who has been uh, wronged or not. You've already lost, is his point, if you take someone to civil court, says Paul. You've broken the unity of the church. You've caused more harm than whatever happened in the first place, of more significant value than whatever happened in the first place. For a fellow believer to take another to court is already a moral failure, is Paul's point. Two wrongs don't make a right, we might say today. Cheating the unity of Jesus' church in a court battle that will split opinions and friendships is worse than being cheated materially, yourself, 
to put your personal rights or our personal material wealth or our possessions above the church family and their unity, and therefore the reputation of Jesus uh, is worse than whatever happened in the first place. It's a greater defeat. Those very actions are an issue of credibility, says Paul. Both for your own faith, you've got to question why you're doing it, and for the credibility of the church, what we look like to the world. Will people believe you're a Christian if you're doing such things? Will the world around believe our message of sacrificial love and forgiveness from Jesus for our sins, our sins that deserve death, if we can't extend a little grace to one another uh, in disputes? It goes against what we say we believe, to be united with Christ, loving others before ourselves. It is to behave in a way that seeks self rather than Jesus first. And I think that's why Paul then gives a swift reminder of the fate of those who live according to self, according to the world, rather than according to Jesus. So he says, if you're, if you're behaving like this, your credibility is questioned. Then verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not, uh, don't do wrong to repay wrong within the church family. That is not who we are anymore. That is what we used to be like, like the world, but that is not who we are anymore. That is what people would do if they do not belong to the kingdom of God to come. It is not, credible, uh, not a credible way to put Jesus first. To wrong one another. Uh, now, uh, we'll make a, a note or two on these verses I just read. Um, uh, firstly, Paul is not saying that Christians will never sin, which may be what we thought those verses said. Uh, so, he is not saying that Christians will never sin in sexual immorality, adultery, homosexual sex, greed, drunkenness, slandering, uh, swindling. No, Jesus has freed us from the judgment of those things and from that way of life. We may still fail, we may still sin in any or all of those areas, but we're not enslaved to a life like that for such things. We don't belong to them, we don't seek them, it's not what we live for anymore. We strive to live differently and to repent in humility when we fail. But by Jesus' grace and mercy, we are free. Unlike, Paul says, those who still live for those things, who are unrepentant, who are not humble about such things. We reflected on a guy uh, in a chapter or two earlier uh, who was proud about his sexual sin. If we're proud about our sin, if we've rejected Jesus, if we live for those things, he says, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are lives, if you like, marked by the rejection of Jesus, for that is what they still live for. Uh, So that's the first one. Christians will still sin. They will fall into uh, sin in these areas. Uh, The second to note is that uh, here is an example, I think, of what Paul's point is about uh, competency earlier on in the chapter, where uh, the world sees no moral issues with some of the things 
that Paul has just mentioned. So sexual immorality, on the whole, in many ways, is seen as acceptable uh, in the world. Homosexual sex is seen as acceptable in the world. Drunkenness, idolatry, just to name a few from that list, are all seen as acceptable in the world. And as Christians, we too are going to struggle with some of those things because of our own experience and because of the cultural influence on us as a people. But that does not mean that God is evil, if we find it hard to believe some of the things we've just read. And it doesn't mean that the world is right, just because it seems hard. So, uh, let me take the obvious one. How do we think about the act of homosexual sex, for example, uh, as Christians? Now, first note, uh, Paul says that the act of sex is the issue here. Uh, He's not talking about same-sex attraction. He says some Christians were doing these things before they were saved. He's talking about the act of sex. So being a Christian doesn't mean you are or will be perfect. Being a Christian means that you will now have all sorts of things that you used to be involved with and tempted to do, and you'll now have to fight them and face them and be tempted by them and and stand up against them. Uh, Just like uh, we'll struggle against greed and lust. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, you'll need to struggle with that temptation. It's hard. Uh, It shouldn't be a surprise that uh, we know Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. I know uh, several Christian leaders who struggle with this. And so it's a temptation they work against, just like all of us work against different temptations, depending on what we were saved from and into the light. Uh, We can't just say, as is is often the argument, uh, but God, if God has made someone like that or allowed them to be like that, then then it must be okay. That would be a disastrous route to go down on all sorts of levels, where anything anyone desires becomes okay because, well, God's given me this desire. We would be a moral mess as a world. In the end, we need to trust God, trust God's design, trust God's standards above our own feelings, above our own culture. Uh, Now, the Bible reserves sexual union for marriage only between one man and one woman. Uh, And I think we often forget it actually creates a restriction on the act of sex far more than just those who are same-sex attracted. Uh, If you're single, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, for example... If you're disabled, the restriction is is actually wide. And the other thing to say that uh, your sexual orientation does not make you any less or more loved than anybody else in the church. We all love each other. We all come with our own challenges to face. We all come with our own temptations in life as Christians as we strive to put Jesus first and not live for those things any longer. And some have a far harder job of doing that than others. Uh, Those who are physically persecuted for their faith, for example, have a terrible time living for Jesus. Those who are same-sex attracted have a really difficult time living first for Jesus. Those who live a life of disability or illness have a, a terrible time living first for Jesus. 
Uh, Paul would perhaps even argue, though, that even in those uh, cases, uh, it may be more of a privilege to suffer all the more, just as Jesus suffered for us, for the sake of his kingdom to come, where he'll put all things right. We don't love or treat each other differently, uh, as if anyone else is better or worse, depending on uh, how, who they are and where they're from, and what they're saved from, and what they're being challenged with, and what their temptations are. And verse 11 Uh, makes this point quite clear, I think. He says, And that is what some of you were. Some Christians participated in homosexual sex. Some were greedy. Some were swindlers. Some were prostitutes. Some were sexually immoral. Some were adulterers. All of us, in some way, were something of that. Living in darkness. And we've been plonked right in the light by the Lord Jesus. You have been, verse 11, carrying on, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Aren't they great words? You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So we leave behind all those things. Some of us will struggle more with some of those things than others, but we leave behind all of them. Occasionally we'll get it wrong and we'll need to come before Jesus and repent in humility again because now we are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. We no longer cling to those things. We no longer behave according to those things. Whether we find it or not, we are washed and clean of sin. So, uh, to conclude, going back to uh, Paul's original uh, point. Uh, when we face injustice or disputes or mis- misunderstandings in the church community, let's talk to each other about it. Let's get help from the wider church community and from the leadership if we need to. And let us do that all in love and for the sake of unity, as Paul's been saying since chapter 1. We, it might mean we have to accept decisions from the church leadership or community that we don't like. We may feel we've been wronged or cheated sometimes or misunderstood. But Paul's point is money, possessions, our feelings, material things, they're all a small price to pay for the sake of being unified in love, for the sake of Jesus and his church. We don't cling to those things anymore. We cling to Jesus. So if we hold too tightly to material things, that we're devastated or, or feeling wounded when we or someone else loses them or takes them or breaks them, then we're holding too tightly to those things, aren't we? Instead, we hold really lightly to the things of this earth and really tightly to Jesus. We seek justice in love and put the reputation of Jesus, the unity of the church, uh, of his people first. Uh, So I'm going to end with uh, two questions uh, that we can think about this week um, to summarise. The first one is, what is more valuable to you? It's the two we started with at the beginning. What's more valuable to you? Think about this for your own life. The reputation of Jesus and his church, or your bank balance? The reputation of Jesus and his church, or your bank balance? Or, slightly to phrase it another way if it's helpful, uh, what do you truly live for? The kingdom of God to come, or for personal satisfaction today? The kingdom of God to come, 
or for personal satisfaction today. Uh, let's have a moment uh, just quietly to think about those questions, um, and then I'm going to pray in a minute. If there's anything I've talked about today um, that you want to talk more about uh, or you're struggling with, perhaps some of those things we talked about, uh, please feel free to come and talk to me. Uh, one of the elders or someone you trust in the church, I'd love to uh, talk further about those things. Let's have a moment of quiet. Think through those questions, and then I'll pray. Psalm 133, verse 1, uh, paints a nice picture for what it is to live in unity. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have designed your world for your people to live in a way that is good and pleasant. We praise you for your truth, for your, for, for your justice, for your righteousness. We praise you for being our moral rock. Help us when we find things hard, particularly when our culture is uh, in some places so different to uh, your standards, your views, your, uh, your rules. Help us to trust and know that your standards and rules are right for us. They are good for your people. They're good for us even if we struggle specifically with some of those things we've mentioned today. They are the way to glorify you, to put Jesus first, to be united as a church. And we pray, Lord, that uh, in all our small and large disputes as a church, we would not seek retribution or vengeance or pride, that we wouldn't hold too tightly to the things of this world, but we would seek to resolve them in love for the sake of unity, that we as a church would be humble before each other, before the church before you so that we may let go of the things that we do not need and hold tightly to the Lord Jesus alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we're going to sing our final song.